Dean said I can go, I can go. How many know the sound guy has all the power? Um, but I wanted to welcome back, uh, on our very first Lower Post trip, we had a gal that was just a really big part of that, and, and I, had, I don't know if I've seen her for 15 years, but big welcome back to Stacy. Where are you, Stacy? Oh, she's downstairs, okay. Well, let her know she's welcome. And uh, Tony, Tony. Good to see you, Tony. Tony was a part of our church for a number of years and uh, uh, a, uh, just came to Canada uh, Asylum here, basically from El Salvador. An amazing story. And uh, it's so good to have you back today, buddy. God's doing some good things. He called me at 6.30 this morning, made sure that I was up praying. And uh, I was, yeah. Good. Well, we're going to continue our series on evangelism today, and um, I'm just going to move my little monitor over here so I can see, and uh, just draw your attention to a couple of resources that I'm in conversation with, as you, a lot of you know. Uh, you've probably seen this on our website. Uh, I am doing a blog in conversation as part of this series with Douglas Todd's book, Cascadia. And I uh, encourage you to go to our website and just follow uh, that as a supplement, uh, just to help enrich uh, this series, because it's important for us to know uh, the, the, the area that we live in. And this is a, a wonderful book written by a compilation of authors. Uh, it was a project of Simon Fraser University, and uh, there are... Writers, scholars, bio-regionalists, pollsters, aboriginals, economists, philosophers, literary specialists, Douglas Todd edits it. And they're all just looking at the spirituality of this, this part of the world called Cascadia, which we are in the heart of. And uh, so encourage you to get on with that. We're, we're going to probably put out an, an article every week for the next few weeks, just covering different authors, different, uh, different chapters. We're also in conversation with this guy. Uh, Bruxy Cavey is the pastor of the Meeting House in Toronto, and I've taught on evangelism for many years. I've done evangelism, have a lot of experience in it, but it's, it's wonderful to hear refreshing voices, and Bruxy, I think, is one of the most refreshing young voices in our nation today, and he did a series in May 2010 on Say What, to, uh, and you can go to their website, just themeetinghouse.ca, and uh, there's a, a whole series. We're kind of following the outline. We're not r- repeating it verbatim, but we're, we're in conversation with that series. And uh, uh, I think that the most important thing is that they're doing it, and they're doing it well. And, and I think it's important for us to, to, to glean from the strengths of others in the body of Christ. And so I encourage you to, as a, as a supplement also to enrich this series for you to log in to, to Bruxy. Um, so our, our topic today is, what is the good news? I, I, I think we have to get that down pretty early in this series, uh, if we're going to do evangelism right and if we're going to do it well. So I want to announce to you that the good news is grandchildren. Um, now this, uh, for those of you that are, are uh, new to our church, this is my daughter on, the, on your left and my granddaughter Hannah, the, the most recent arrival, at least for another few months. And uh, uh, yesterday I had the privilege of holding Samantha. Just want you to know that. Feeling a little smug about that. 
But Samantha is the newest arrival in our church. She's about this long. And uh, there is just something, isn't there, about holding a newborn? There is just something that... The rest of the day, it happened about mid-afternoon. And uh, for the rest of the day, I was just walking around feeling this glow. And everybody I talked to, I, I was biting my tongue. I wanted to say, I held Samantha today. You know, I just, it kind of, I kind of felt like that. And, and, and I still have a little bit of that afterglow to, today. But a lot of you don't realize that when, when Hannah uh, uh, just not, not too long after we'd met her for the second time, it was actually this past summer, we found out, a lot of you don't realize, of course, that Dan, a lot of you know now that Danielle is expecting again and her fourth will be arriving in May. But for a long time, Kathleen and I and Marcus and Dee were the only ones that knew. Boy, that was hard. It was like, for four months, I had to bite my tongue. And uh, so when Dee finally said, it's okay to tell, and she posted it on Facebook, the nerve of her, because I wanted to be the one to tell, of course, uh, it, it was just an in- incredible relief to finally be able to tell. And, and we made the point last week that evangelism is like that. Is that Jesus finally gives us permission, just like that leper, remember from the reading, where he says, don't tell anybody? <laughs> and the leper just <laughs> broadcasts it everywhere, right? Totally blows it. But it's, it's Jesus giving us permission to tell people what we've been dying to tell them all along. And uh, if that's not the case with evangelism, then something's wrong. You know, it says in the book of Acts that the disciples, when they were told to shut up, it says, they said to the religious leaders, but we cannot help but talk about what we've seen and heard. They were just overwhelmed by this. A smart guy said this, when a person or congregation understands and has experienced the joyous news of the kingdom of God, evangelization is natural and spontaneous. People can't keep such news to themselves. But the problem is, is that we get the gospel wrong. And when the gospel, when we start getting the gospel wrong, we don't want to talk about it anymore or we evangelize wrongly. And this happened to a group of people way back in the early church. It happened right within a generation or two of the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus to a group of people in Galatia. And Paul writes to them and he says, I am astonished. I'm astonished. He was literally shocked. He said that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, in this particular case, uh, these were a group of people who began to uh, try to find their salvation or their relationship with God through performance by trying, going back into earning it. And, and uh, uh, that was the... That there was a dilution of the gospel for them. But through church history, the gospel has been diluted in, in varying ways. What, what happens is, is that every culture that comes along, the gospel challenges that culture. And what, what we as Christians sometimes want to do is to keep the peace, is we'll, we'll compromise those things in the gospel that are kind of at cross currents with our culture. Or we pick and choose things that 
kind of fit our agenda and we appoint Jesus as our mascot kind of for our lifestyle, for our worldview. Every culture has its prominent idols and twisted priorities. And so when we, when we hear things in the gospel that suit our agenda, we go, well, that, that's good. And, uh, and, and, um, and so through church history, for example, you'll find that during the Crusades, the Crusaders and the Knights, they put crosses on their shields as they went out and killed Muslims, right? This explains why Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda slaughtered each other. They called themselves Christians, and they slaughtered each other in the genocide. And it explains why white Christians in South Africa and white Christians in the southern U.S. refused to worship with black Christians, even though they were Christians, quote-unquote. And it explains, in case you're kind of sitting there like a smug Canadian, how we as Canadians in the name of God could tear Aboriginal children from their parents and try to produce a cultural genocide in the name of God, in the name of evangelism. You see, if we don't get the gospel right, we start doing some really bad things. Or we just shut up because basically it's no fun to tell people about legalism, is it? <laughs> That's not fun. Hey, you want to follow God that makes you keep all these rules and, you know... Uh, Tells you to, shames you. Because basically that was the, the, the thing that happened in Galatia. Legalism is shame-based. It's a shame-based religion. So we better get it right. So what is the gospel? Well, Mark in chapter 1 says the be he, he begins his gospel with the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. By the way, I hope you all got one of these. On the back, you can follow me in uh, just to kind of see where I'm going uh, or to determine if I am actually going anywhere. It, Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the beginning of the good news. Now the gospel, yeah, if you need one, just raise your hand, and uh, Christy will get one to you. The word gospel is an old English word for good news. And when Mark translates this, uh, some translations have the beginning of the gospel. Some of the newer translations say good news. It's the word euangelion. The same, the same word, sorry, euangelion. I, I think I pronounced it wrong. Euangelion. It's the Greek word which means good news. It's, it's the same word for evangelism. So a person who evangelizes is a person who's good newsing. If you're an evangelist, you're a good newser. To be evangelizing is to be good newsing. We're good news people. All right? How many know the word on the street isn't always consistent with that when you hear the word evangelical? But when, the word, when you say evangelical, it literally means, oh, that's a good newser. That's a person who has good news for you. All right? And so Mark starts his gospel by saying, his book, by saying the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, which, which tells us something. It tells us that the good news... If, it, if this is the beginning, it tells us that the good news is the story of Jesus. It's the story of his coming. It's the story of his life. It's the story of, of his teaching. It's the story of how he treated a leper, like we read in the second reading today. It's the story of how he treated children. It's the story of how he treated prostitutes and sinners. It's the story of how he confronted religious hypocrisy. The whole thing is the good news. I don't know why we evangelicals have reduced it to this little linear four spiritual laws. That's not how the early church saw it. 
And not only was, is it the story of Jesus that began there, it's the story of Jesus that continues now. So whenever you tell somebody about what Jesus has done in your life, that is the good news. It's a part of it. When you tell about what Jesus has done, what he, uh, you, when you tell his story, that is that you're gospelizing, you're good newsing, you're evangelizing. That sounds easy, huh? That makes it a little easier. This is the story of Jesus. It's also the story, of course, his suffering and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and the implications of all that. That's why there's a lot of writing about him after he did all that. That's all part of it. It's the good news. There's a lot to write about. We're still been writing, I'll tell you. Volumes and volumes. I was, I was thinking of putting out a 25... Si- Volume, Systematic Theology by Lagore. No. So so the work is ongoing today. Then Mark, in a a few few verses later, gives a a kind of a 30-second soundbite of the gospel as, as he saw it. Verse 14, he says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, how many of us have evangelicals, as evangelicals have heard, the gospel is Jesus died for my sins so I could be forgiven? How many have ever heard that? That's the gospel. How many have heard that? Well, what's this Jesus preaching about years before he ever died? What's all this? He's already preaching the good news. What is that? Well, Matthew kind of elaborates on that. When he says, Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the, the people. As I said last week, quoting Bruxy Cavey, Jesus was his, favorite, was, his, was his favorite topic. Jesus was Jesus' favorite topic. The king was here. The kingdom was here. And everywhere he went, he was a one-man wrecking crew on the kingdom of darkness. He healed sickness and disease. He announced that the kingdom of darkness was, their time was up. The time is fulfilled. The reign of God is here. And demons were cast out. The sick were healed. The poor had good news preached to them. The dead were raised. It was a sign. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. The reign of God is here. And the signs of that reign were everywhere he went. I got news for you folks. He's given us that same commission. He said, as the Father has sent me, I send you. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be as a church. We're not just called to walk around and tell people about good words. We're here to do the works of Jesus. And to speak His words. Both. Do His words. Do His deeds. Speak His words. And so Jesus went everywhere. And He said, as the Father has sent me, I send you. Now Paul elaborates on that And this is maybe what we're more familiar with as evangelicals in 1 Corinthians. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel or good news. I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So Paul says, here's the good news. This wasn't a surprise. This was predicted a long time ago about the Messiah. He has come, 
and everything that the, the Scripture said He would do, He has done. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. We've been forgiven. We've been given a clean slate. Now, we need to... We need to it, it can be confusing because we'll read about what the good news was during the time of Jesus and then we read, this seems to be like another slant on the good news or another, another aspect of it. We need to understand that the Gospel is a fully orbed, multidimensional message. As I said, it's, already, it's, it's the story of Jesus. And, and the, the problem with us as evangelicals is that we've tended to focus on this verse. We've tended to focus on this aspect of the Gospel. And it's not that it's not important. It is. It's important. But there's more to the Gospel than this. There's more to the Gospel than being forgiven of our sins. It's not just you know, having your sins forgiven, going to heaven and living like hell until you get there. There's more to it. Right? Kenny agrees with me. Thank you. So, the presentation of the Gospel in, in Scripture, have you ever noticed Jesus, even Jesus' own witnessing? Isn't it interesting how Jesus would lead people to Himself? You know, you talk about leading people to the Lord. Well, Jesus would lead people to himself, right? And the woman at the well has got to be one of my favorite stories, and we won't have time to go through it today, but we will in this series, believe me. But what an incredible uh, story of how he approached her. And, 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 the, and the metaphor was, you need a drink of water. For Nicodemus, says, you need to be born again. For other people, it was, was Zacchaeus. Think about how Jesus witnessed to Zacchaeus. You know how he witnessed to Zacchaeus? How did he do it? Yeah, I'm going to go have dinner at your house. Can I witness that way to you, Paul? All right. And what happens? Right in the middle of that encounter, he stands up and says, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I've, if I've, if I've ripped anybody off, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. And Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. Where's the sinner's prayer? Where's the altar call? Where do you raise your hand? It, and, and, and every person is different. But you know why? Because God is not a cookie-cutter God. He, each one of us. We found that with drug addiction, haven't we? We found out that no one person comes, off, comes out the same way. And you try to do that, you get in trouble. Every person, God has a unique plan and purpose for your life. And he, he will come to you. The starting point for you and I will vary depending on, on our needs and where we are. How many are glad that God comes to you where you are? He comes to you at your point of need. He doesn't give you this script and this pre-programmed linear you know, statement and says, fit into this or you're going to hell. He comes to you where you are. Now, having said all that, it's helpful to have a rubric it's helpful to, to, to as it were, uh, put within ourselves uh, a sense, uh, what I call scales. Has anybody here ever had to practice your scales? I'm not talking about scaling fish. All right? Now, a lot of you probably don't realize this, but when I was six years old, my parents uh, put me into accordion lessons. And um, it was quite funny because the accordion was so big uh, that all you could see was two little eyeballs bugging over the top and two feet coming out of the bottom. And uh, uh, some of you know that, and uh, Gordy Gibosh doesn't cease to persecute me over this, but <laughs> every two weeks they used to put me, I used to live in this town in northern Alberta called High Prairie, known to millions of people around the world as where? And 
and uh, every, uh, every two weeks, Friday night at the end of the school week, they would put me on a train at 11 o'clock at night. And I would go on the train all night at 7 o'clock in the morning in Edmonton. My grandpa would be waiting there at the train station. Uh, he'd pick me up, and about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'd either take accordion lessons or vocal lessons or theory, music theory. I did this all my growing, a lot of my growing up years. Took lessons all through my growing up years, up to grade 12. Finished grade 10 in the accordion. But one of the things that I had to do was I had to do scales. And I would start with the C scale and the G and the D. They're pretty easy. But then you go to those sharp keys and flat keys. And so a lot of it, you look at the notes, you look at your keys, and you're going like that, you're going like that, and you're, you feel awkward. But what I was trying to do was I was trying to get, become conversant with every key on the, in the instrument. Because no matter what the key would be in, when I saw a musical score, I could easily play it. So I would practice those scales. I, I rarely ever in a musical pr- uh, in a piece ever used any one of those scales. But they were absolutely fundamental to, to, uh, to learning other pieces of music and learning to play in different keys. And the idea was to become so conversant with them is that, that I could naturally play. I was doing something unnatural, something that made me feel awkward, so that I could become more naturally a musician. That's, that's why our worship teams, they work hard, because if they're so focused on their music in the worship set, they can't, they can't worship. And our, our worship people work hard, so that, that by the time they play, that the music isn't a distraction, basically. But the music is actually an enhancement to our worshiping God. And they do a great job of that. And so it's important for, for us as, as people who evangelize to learn our scales. And what I want to do today is give you some scales in evangelism, in getting the gospel right. Now, before I give you the first scale, and I want to preface this with an, a quick thought on translation. Translation is important in mission work, isn't it, Wade? It's, it's important to learn the language of the people that you love and, and you want to serve. It, it, it's amazing how much one or two words that you will pick up. They'll just, you know, I remember when we were in Zimbabwe and I learned a few words in Shona. And I would say them when I got up to preach and their eyes would get like, ah, they'd get all excited. And then they were singing, Gordy's alive. And I thought, man, they're so excited they're singing about me. But then I realized later it was God is alive. I thought they were singing, Gordy's alive. But anyway. Had a great time over there. But translation is very important. So, language is always changing. Sometimes we think, well, we need to translate if we're going to a a cross-cultural, you know, to another part of the world or to another people group. But we need to realize that even in our own culture, language is always changing. So, imagine me going up to somebody on the drive. And fresh from a regent class, I say to them, Allow me today to show you how the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus on the cross brought atonement for justification, redemption, and reconciliation through the blood of Jesus. Now, how many know they'd either look at me from Mars or think I'm in the Twilight Show, right? Yeah. So all these things are true. Everything I just said about the gospel is true. What I just used, those big words, they're all true. But what I'm going to do now is take all of those words into consideration when I say this. 
The good news is that God is relentlessly pursuing us in Christ in order to show us His love and to reconcile us to Himself and to one another so that we can live in His new order which He is setting up on earth. Now, it is my conviction that I've just given you basically a 30-second soundbite of the Gospel as a scale. And what I'd like to do is take a few minutes to break down each section of that, and you'll, you'll see me... F- uh, you can follow the, the notes with this under point five. First of all, the good news. I think we as evangelicals sometimes forget this, that it starts with its good news. And I think where we get it wrong sometimes is we get concerned about people needing to know their need. You know, how many know that if, if somebody... Uh, if you tell somebody that's got cancer that you found a cure for their cancer and they don't know they have cancer, it may not come across as good news when you tell them they got cancer. But Jesus said, with regards to this, He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And I think that often we, we in an attempt to do the Holy Spirit's job for Him, <laughs> we're going to convict them. How many have ever witnessed, you know, or seen a witnessing scenario where somebody tries to convince somebody that they're, they're really, really needy? I remember one of our young guys in Calgary, we were going down the street, you know, and, and uh, he was trying to hand out tracts to somebody, and he handed a track out to, to a, a girl at, at the ca- counter somewhere, and she says, no, thank you. And, and uh, he says, are you happy? And she says, uh, yes. And he says, I don't believe you. And she says, are you happy? And he says, yeah. yes. She says, well, I don't believe you either. <laughs> you know, so, so the, you know, and so, or, or we try to come across like God's angry at everybody. God's angry at you. And so just make him stop being angry at you. You need to, you know, and uh, let me be honest. There is an aspect of God that is, that there isn't a, if God doesn't get angry, he's not good. So uh, we understand in the character of God, that, you know, with pedophilia and child trafficking and, and uh, the, the things that God has to look at in our world, if he doesn't get angry, he's not good. We, so, so there is that aspect of God. But we need to understand that even that, that part of his anger against our, what we do to him and do to each other, he has taken care of on the cross. And it says his anger was revealed against all ungodliness and and unrighteousness of people. And then Paul says through the good news. It's through the good news that that was was resolved. Now, so it's important to understand that God's posture towards us as humanity is one of love and goodness and and reconciliation. and, and, And he's for us. Right? And so... It's very hard for me to come to somebody that I think is mad at me. So we have to be very careful about our posture as as Christians. And we need to realize, first of all, that it's the good news. The second thing is it's not good advice. It's good news. See, a lot of religions, they offer advice. They offer you, you know, here's the eightfold path to nirvana, or here's eight pillars to, to salvation, or the, here's the traditions and the sacraments and the rituals if you want to do these to earn your way to heaven. But the gospel is an announcement that God has front-loaded your salvation. He has said, you don't need to obtain it. It's been done. 
It's, we, we've often used the analogy, the difference between doing and done. Religion is doing. The gospel is it's done. God front-loaded it. He's given you your salvation. He's given you everything you think you need. And now your life becomes a celebration of what you've already received rather than striving for something you don't have. So keep those things as a foundation. The good news is that God is relentlessly pursuing us in Christ. God is pursuing us relentlessly. What that means is He doesn't give up very easy. You know, He doesn't go, you want to come to heaven? Get lost, God. Okay, go to hell then. Now, we're like that sometimes, right? But it says as we, you know, in the psalm, He's slow to anger. Peter said, He's not slow. He's patient. He's, he, he's, he's not willing that any should perish. And so, as we said last Sunday, the only reason we're still here, the only, if, if it was just that we're here for worship, he could get rid of all the impediments to worship. But because he's not willing that any should perish, we're still here. And he's still relentlessly pursuing the, the, the chapter that's more in evangelism than any other than the Gospels, Luke chapter 15. Starts where the uh, Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, we don't like the people you're hanging out with. All those gays and lesbians and prostitutes and drug addicts. and You know, it, 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 it's not only your reputation, Jesus, but you're, you're undermining the, the, us being a Christian nation. You're undermining us being a godly nation. By, by, by doing that, these people are in the way of us, of Messiah coming. They were really upset with him. And so he said to them, he tells them three stories. The first is about a woman. God is like a woman who lost her coin. And she looked for it high and low. And when she finally found it, she called a party. And then God's like a man. Luke does this, by the way. Luke constantly, man, woman, man, woman. It's radical for the first century. The egalitarianism in Luke. Talks about a man who can't have kids, can't have a barren, barren couple, comes to the man. Zechariah then comes to the woman, Mary, supernatural birth. Jesus talks about a Gentile man who comes to Elisha and gets healed of leprosy. And then he talks about a Gentile woman that Elijah goes through in the famine. And Luke just one after the other, just boom, boom, back and forth. And so again, right here, there's a man, there's a woman. And I'll talk more about the significance of that in the gospel in a few minutes, but keep Keep a note on that. And then he talks about a father who lost his son. Now, when the man, the man that lost his sheep found his sheep, he goes and has a party. He has a party when he finds the sheep. And then a father who lost his son. But this is different. The father doesn't go chasing after the son like the woman did after the coin or like the shepherd did after. What's different about this? The, the father is waiting for the son. When he finally sees him, he goes running to him. We, we covered that a bit last week. But at the end of the story, who does he pursue? Who's he going after? Is he going after the prodigal? Who's the father going after there? The older son. Who's the older son? Those Pharisees. The father's looking for you. He can't find you. Where are you? The real story of the prodigal son is who's the lost one. That's really the message. I mean, Jesus nailed them. <laughs> he just... Who's lost? Right? 
So God pursues us. He's relentless in his pursuit. Can I, can I make a couple other points about that? Well, I'm going to anyway. He's pursuing us, and that's present tense. That's not past tense. That's present tense. He's, he's doing that now. See, you and I are evangelizing with the understanding that God is the evangelist. All we're doing is partnering with him. That's all we're doing. We're just partnering. We're just saying, Father, what are you doing? I, who are you going after? Can I work with you? And recognizing his sovereignty and the people that you know in your life, that you meet in the, every day. When we go to Chiliwag and I say, Lord, who am I going to meet today? Who, who do you want me to talk to? Or who do you want me to listen to? Maybe it's going to be some of that for, for, for a few weeks, right? Or months or years. So, uh, and it's in Christ. It's, it's, re- it's unapologetically Christocentric. What do I mean by that? The gospel is unapologet- unapologetically Jesus-centered. What that means is that we're not some, talking about some ethereal, cosmic spark of divinity in each one of us. That, that's all love. And, no. Christ is the dividing line. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I better be careful. I'm going to throw my watch across the room here. And then we'll all be in big trouble. All right. So God is relentlessly pursuing us in Christ in order to show us his love. The good news is that we don't need to be in doubt about who God is or what he's like. As I said, it's not some esoteric, ethereal reality in the cosmos, but it's actual history. God showed up in time and space, in history, a physical human being. When Joan Osborne said, if God is one of us a few years ago, we could say, yes, he was one of us. He did ride on the bus. He did walk with us. Feel our pain. And what was he like? What was he like towards sinners? What was he like towards the outcasts? What was he like towards the marginalized? What was he like towards the poor, the widow, the orphan? What was he like? What was he like towards the homosexual? What was he like towards the the prostitute? What was he like towards the criminal, the marginalized? Those who don't feel like they're a part. What was he like? That's why every day of my life when I read my Bible, I always read one of the Gospels. I read, I read from Genesis to Revelation every two years. I go through the whole Bible. But every day, no matter where I read, I make sure I read something from the Gospel. Because the Bible says God, who at many times in many ways spoke to us, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. He has the last word. When the disciples said, let's build three tabernacles, the Father said, shut up and listen to Him. Sorry, I kind of got a little fired up there. What happened? It's the coffee. It's that coffee, that espresso. That's, that's what did it. All right. Jesus-centered, Christ-centered, good news-centered. Every part of the Bible makes sense in light of Christ, who he is. So critical, so critical. John said this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in, who, and in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ 
died for us. He didn't die for me when I came to him. He didn't die for me when I said the sinner's prayer or got baptized. He didn't die for me when I spoke in tongues. He died for me when I cursed him, like we sang this morning. He died for me when I said, I want nothing to do with you. When we mocked him and criticized him, spot on him, that's when he died for us. That's how he loved us. That's what the Bible tells us about God's love. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for one another. Andrew Murray put it this way, The sum total of God's dealings with us is to get us to trust him again. So who do you trust? Is it not someone who's won your trust by loving you, by laying their life down for you? The second thing is that he is pursuing us in order to reconcile us to himself. So he wants to demonstrate his love so that he can reconcile us to himself. This word reconcile is huge. Social justice is subject to this word reconcile. Mercy is subject to this word reconcile. Everything we do is subject to this understanding of reconcile. Reconcile means to become friends again. Two people who were estranged are reconciled. If a marriage is broken and they come back together again, they're reconciled. It's a restored relationship that was broken. The good news tells us that we've been reconciled. It tells us that God is, has done what needs to be done in order for us to be reconciled to Him and to one another. It's both. The, if, as you read the New Testament, it's not just us and God. It's constantly us and God, us and one another. Men with women, rich with poor, Jew with Gentile, slave with free, socially, culturally, class, every barrier that humanity has, it's been broken through the gospel. Reconciled. But what's inherent in reconciliation? What's inherent in that word? It means something was broken between us and God. And you read about it in Genesis 1-3 to that when our relationship with God was broken, then Adam starts accusing Eve. He says, it's the, it's the woman you gave me. And Eve starts blaming the serpent. And, and we get not only broken from one another, but we become estranged with all creation. And in the New Testament, it says that the whole creation is vomiting, it's groaning, it's crying out. There's, there's, there's a reconciliation even needed with the created order and humanity. And it's happening, isn't it? That groaning of creation. But the good news tells us that this broken relationship between God and one another, between the sexes, the races, the classes, even between us and creation, it's being restored. You read the Old Testament prophets, what they promised about the coming kingdom. It was about creation being restored, about the wolf lying down with the lamb, about a child being able to play with a poisonous snake and not being harmed. And we can go to lower posts and send our kids in the bush and they won't get devoured by a, a grizzly. Why do we always transfer to that to some ethereal future experience when God says His kingdom has come now? This is the gospel. So Paul, Paul worded it this way, that God was in Christ. God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. First of all, Paul says that God came in Christ. He said, I want to be your friend. God walked around on this planet, walked our dusty streets, walked our towns, our villages, went into our pubs. And he said, hi, I want to be your friend. Can we be friends again? Can we be friends? Not, and, and, and then Paul adds this important phrase because we're going, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. Yeah, but you don't know God. You don't know what kind of life I've lived. And God says, uh-huh, I do. I do. And I'm not counting your sins against you. It, it, it's, 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 he, he did an Italian um, evangelism job. But God, what about my sins? And God said, forget about it. Right? Now, it's not making light of sin. I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but, but in a real sense, he was. He was saying, I'm not counting your sin against you. Let's be friends. Clean slate. Let's start over. And so Paul says he came not counting our sins against us. And, and there, there's a couple of things that are inherent in that, that statement. There, first of all, there is such a thing as sin. It's not a bad upbringing. It's not a vitamin B deficiency. It's not, I was abused as a child. But there, there is this thing called sin. And so often when we, when we hear the word sin, we think of, well, I broke a rule. I, I, I broke a command or but sin is, it, we have, if, you, if you understand correctly, sin from God's perspective is always relational. The very heart of sin, the, of, of the biblical understanding of sin, is it's relational. You say, well, what about the commandments and the rules? Well, why do we have commandments in society? Why do we have rules? Why do we have rules for the road? What, what is that? It's so we get along with each other. Still born out of society and culture and community and, and being relational. All sin, it, at the heart of it, is relational. You hurt somebody. You offended somebody. You were unloving to somebody. You were rude to somebody. You stole from somebody. You cheated on somebody's husband or wife or your own. You hurt somebody. Okay? Don't talk to me again about sin outside the context of relationship. Kingdom of God knows nothing else but that. Sin is relational. The very heart of it. And it's, it's not... Um, yes, it is making a wrong choice, but there's more to it. The scriptures are clear there's more to it than that. It's, it talks about it being a force and a power. You find this in Romans 7 and different parts where Paul talks about this mysterious force of sin that's at work. And, and, and I don't think any of us can fully understand it. But it's what's in us that keeps hurting God and keeps hurting one another. Why do I? Isn't it a testimony to our fallenness that the people we hurt the most are the ones we love the most, that we're the closest to? Isn't that a testimony to how wretched we are, twisted and perverted? We're messed up. But Jesus loves us. He loves us. So it's, it's it, and this, 
the essence of sin is, is personal autonomy, where we say, I, I, am, I have the right to my own autonomy and independence from God. It results in estrangement from God and from others, between the genders again, the races, the classes, social and economic classes, between even generations. And it causes all kinds of bad things. It's the single root problem of the world. I was at Chili Wagon on Tuesday night, and I was there before the, the Chili Wagon arrived, the, the van with the, the chili. So I was just talking to some of the guys in the line, and there was this very articulate First Nations man who started talking about all the corruption that he sees on the reserves and how upset he is about it. You know, they get, you get all these people that are in leadership that make a lot of money, and then the rest of the tribe, the rest of the nation is still suffering. So I, I was trying, being a non-native, I was trying to own our own sin in that, and I said, well, it sounds like we passed our system on to you. He said, nah, he says, he says it's, you know what it is? He says, it's human nature. He said, it has nothing to do with white first. He says, it's human nation. He's, and, and then he said this. He said, he said you know what? I think, I think we're just going to evolve into something that's totally not human. We're just, I see no hope for the human race. I was shocked. I wasn't prepared for that. And I think I've been watching too much Battlestar Galactica because I said, maybe we'll just all become Cylons. <laughs> what a dumb thing. <laughs> or cyborg. Is that the other one? <laughs> and do you ever have a conversation with somebody where five minutes later you think of what you should have said? That was one of those things. And, and by the way, when you have conversations like that, reflect on them later. I... I'm not sure if I should have said more, but I, I, I could think of a lot of wonderful things. But I'll tell you what, as I reflected on that conversation, I realized that the gospel was the only solution for what this guy was crying out for. The gospel was the only hope, other than evolving into Cylons. But. <laughs> so I think we'll start a new cult. Yeah. Yeah, it's getting fracking late, so let's continue. Um, if, if you look at the end of the, uh, the passage here, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know, John, isn't that just the most amazing verse in the whole Bible? This, this has got to be the most amazing. Who will ever comprehend what that just said? God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Not just bear our sin here, but become sin. So that, you see, because this, the first problem is what we've done. The, the second problem is what we keep on doing to each other. And Paul says the solution for that is so, somehow what Christ has done, he has dealt with that force, that power in us that keeps hurting each other. There is something in the cross and what Jesus has done that keeps us from doing that so that we can become the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God. A word that I like to trans transfer for righteousness to make it a little more translatable for our time is the goodness of God. God made Jesus to be the badness of humanity so that you and I could become the goodness of God. Wow. Wow. 
know, I mean, we're, we're going to be wrangling with that one for eternity, seriously. Remember when Jesus said that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And remember that snake? Jesus said, I'm going to become that snake. I'll become sin. And every evil, vile thing, every pedophilic act, every, every crime against humanity, every holocaust, every broken relationship, every act of hatred and greed and strife and lust was placed on him. So, so the power of sin is, is broken. And then lastly, he, he wants to show us his love, reconcile us to himself and one another so that we can live in his new order that he's setting up on earth. When you ask a typical evangelical Christian, Ronald Sider says this, in the West, what the gospel is, they will typically answer the forgiveness of sins. It's a good old Reformation word. They mean justification by faith. And so what they do is they see it as a one-way ticket to heaven, but you can live like hell until you get there. You can be the same adulterer, racist, and bigot that you've always been. But when Jesus announced the good news, he announced the good news of the kingdom. And to contemporary Jewish ears, they would have understood what he meant. It meant the reign of God. It meant a new order where we were back in right relationship with God and with each other, and there was a transformation of relationships at the vertical and horizontal level, and plows, our, our swords were turned into plowshares. So the good news was preached, sheer grace was preached, but then God says that the entranceway is into a new order, a new social economic order where men treated women as equals. Do you realize the way that Jesus treated women was so radical? It just wasn't done in his time. We say, well, he only had 12 male apostles, blah, blah, blah. The fact that he allowed women to travel around with him and hear his teaching and be taught was just blowing away stereotypes. He, he, it says he was born as a Jew under the law. There was still a, 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 a restraint and a respect for that. But, the, but Paul begins to elaborate on the implications of how Jesus treated women when later he wrote, so you are now children of God in Christ through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one. In Christ Jesus. And so we're talking about a fully orbed gospel. For Jesus, the starting point of the good news was God's new order. For Paul, the starting point was forgiveness. They are not in contradiction to each other. They're all part of the good news, the, the full orb of the gospel. That forgiveness and justification by faith opens the door for us to begin to live in God's new order. And so our mission as a church is directly connected. The gospel shapes our mission. The good news, and I put this on the other sheet, on the other side of your sheet, but evangelism is that aspect of the church's mission which endeavors to offer every person the opportunity to encounter and embrace the good news of Jesus, whereas discipleship is, is that aspect of the church's mission which helps people mature, develop, and thrive as fully devoted followers of Jesus in, in God's new order. These are actually two sides of the same coin, two views of the same fully orb process, evangelism, discipleship. They're, they're utterly connected. Evangelism is good newsing. Discipleship is, is, is being trained for God's new order, living in God's new order. So again, getting the gospel right, my, 
My 30-second soundbite is not for you to go around parroting this, but to either use this or something that you own inside of you that sums up the good news. As you tell your story, as you refer to stories of Jesus, as you enter conversations respecting what the Spirit of God is doing, you, you ha- it's like that scale. I never use the scale when I play music, but it's there. I'm, the skill developed with the scale is, is there. As I share the good news, as I play that musical piece, So the good news is that God is relentlessly pursuing us in Christ in order to show us His love and to reconcile us to Himself and one another so that we can live in His new order which He is setting up on earth. So what I'd like you to do this week, you have homework, dear ones. Take some time. You notice I have a lot of scriptures under each of those points. I looked all of those up and they just blew me away. They just blessed me. And you know... It's just like me holding little Samantha and just walking around just good newsing wherever I went with respect for the fact that you might want to talk about your baby. So that's fine. I'll let you talk about your baby. But, but you know, because social propriety is all part of this, isn't it? It's, it's being respectful of people and, and discerning whether they're ready and wanting to listen. But, but we need to be absorbed with the good news afresh. The good news is not just for when you became a Christian. The good news is for you to, to be penetrated by every day. Every day you and I need to need that good news. Getting, living, giving the good news. Getting, living, giving. Everybody say that. Getting, living, giving. You can't give what you don't got. And I think the reason a lot of us don't evangelize is we, we, have, we have not allowed the gospel to keep, we, we've not allowed ourselves to keep getting overwhelmed. But it, was this good news you just heard today? Was that good news? Am I in the right crowd? Oh, thank you. And so, for example, take some time, review the scriptures. This is what I did, and, and I came out with another one. Re- and take a look at this, sh- this statement that I've made and then rephrase it in your own words, taking into account your life, the people you know, and then with your husband or wife or, or roommate or somebody that, that you trust, practice on them. Practice giving that 30-second soundbite. Now, this is an example. Because of Jesus, I, I, this is one, one rephrasing I did. I have been given eternal worth and significance and my present and future has been secured so that I am free to love and be loved for the rest of eternity. The reason why this is so important for me, this is part of my story, is because I came to Christ because I kept feeling like I had to score 25 points in a basketball game to have significance and worth. And so if I did score that when I was in high school, I felt worth and value. But when I didn't, I felt like I sucked as a person. And Christ came into my life and, and just so penetrated me with his unconditional love and worth and value. I realized I'd been set free from trying to get my worth and value. I was now free to give that. To, to, because I was loved, I could love. He sets you free from that need to perform in order for worth and value. Right? So that's my, you, you hear my testimony coming through this a little bit. So, so do that. Rephrase, rephrase this summary statement in your own words this week. Write it out. Do it, do it as many times as you need to till you're happy with it. And then when you're done, just, just share it with somebody. Now for our, our prayer time, uh, I, I, 
I want to just refer us back to what Jesus said. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And uh, I, I was reading in my morning devotions this week the story of the demonized boy. I don't know if you remember that story where Jesus had been up on the, the mountain with three disciples and they came down from transfiguration. You know, that great experience. And, the, and there's this father that's tears in his eyes. He falls at Jesus' feet and he says, he says, and, and, he's, and this is how Luke says it. He's, he, the father says, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Remember last week your assignment was? What was it? How many did it? Oh. Okay, well, I'll just apply for another job somewhere else. Now, what did I say? If we, don't, if we don't do this, we're hypocrites. If we're just hearers and we don't do it, we're hypocrites. So I'm going to tell you to do it again. I didn't do it all week, and I screwed up a few times. But I tell you what, just get up and keep doing it. What I asked you to do was ask the Father to show you how he sees people as you walk through your week. Ask him to give you his eyes. Now, what did this, boy ask, what did this father ask, ask Jesus to do? He said, look at my son. Would you ask the Father to look at people and to show you how he sees people? Would you do this? Will you do this? Will you do it? Wait, I mean, why are we here? Why the frack are we here? That Battlestar Galactica, I'll tell you, it's just having a great impact. Why are we here if we're not doing this? Asking God who you work with, who you... Who your neighbors are? Are you seeing them with the Father's eyes? Right? So ask God to give you his eyes. So Jesus says to the, the, this boy, this father says to the, to the Lord, he says, look at my son. I beg you, look at him, for he's my only child. For a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. This demonic power was tormenting this little boy, throwing him into the fire. Do we see? Do we see people, my friends? Are we seeing? Are we seeing our neighbors? Are we seeing their pain? He said, Jesus, look at my son. And he says, I begged your disciples to drive him out, but they could not do it. Boy, I tell you, I identify with those disciples. And what does Jesus say? He says, oh, you poor disciples. Oh, you, you just, oh, poor guys. You just didn't, you just didn't get it. I'm amazed how hard Jesus was on them. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How long will I stay with you and put up with you? And when I, when I read that, I said, Lord, unless your gospel is penetrating me where I repent and I believe, then I'm going to let my generation down. The gospel has to penetrate me. I have to get that good news. It has to, to fill me and overwhelm me. So Jesus said, bring him here. He healed him. And it says they were all amazed at the greatness of God. See, what happens is if you and I do not believe the good news, if we don't, if we don't receive that good news, if we don't walk in that good news, we misrepresent God. We distort who God is to our generation. And let me tell you, 
It's not very good news. It's not good news. So I'm going to ask you to do this for our ministry time. Where in my life do I need that good news to penetrate me today? And in light of the good news, what is the response of repentance and faith that God is inviting me to today? Let's pray. Mm. Lord, just would you come? Would you come? Would you just, we just invite you, Lord, into those areas where we're just not, we're, we're, we're just, like uh, one person said, there's just unbelieving parts of the believer, unbelieving parts of the believer's heart. Lord, we just invite you to come and bring us good news in those parts of our heart and our life that we need. Come, Lord. Lord, I pray for those of us here today who maybe just need to decide to follow you. Just say yes to that good news and say, I, I want to enter your kingdom, your new order. And I want you to begin to teach me how to live in that new order. Based on grace, based on mercy, not based on shame or performance. Come, Lord. For those of us that have wandered away from you, who've, who've, who've just thought it, well, I've got, my sins are forgiven, I've got my one-way ticket to heaven, I'll just live like hell and misrepresent you and give the finger to other people in the traffic or who cares how I look or what I li live like. And Lord, we've lost sight of, of our call. Lord, call us back. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. If you're here and you would like to receive prayer, maybe just the Lord just has uh, spoken to you about something this morning that you'd like further prayer into, can I encourage you not to run away with that? Let somebody pray with you that you trust. Uh, come forward if you're not sure who to ask for prayer. There'll be some of us here around the front that would be willing to pray for you. If you need healing... If you need deliverance, if you need uh, just uh, the, what you heard about the kingdom of God, just to break into some of those areas of your life today, uh, just don't leave without that. We strongly value as a church not just uh, letting you hear preaching and then take off and, and, and go on with your life. We, we value uh, allowing the Holy Spirit to come. So I know some of you have to go get your kids right now, and, and that's important, so please do that. But if you have to do that and you would like prayer, maybe just go sign them out and then bring them back and maybe have a friend or somebody just watch them while you get some prayer. All right? So the grace of the Lord Jesus and love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit, let it be upon each one of you. Uh, as Dawson blessed the kids, so we also bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and give you his shalom. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.